0: Welcome to Praxis. It is my joy to be able to fellowship with you and to serve in a small capacity. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. And as a fellowship group, as a young adult singles ministry, we have been working our way through uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And as uh, Jason mentioned, as uh, ministry associate Chris referenced in the beginning, we are in Romans chapter 7, and um, go ahead and take your Bibles and open there. We're so grateful to be expositing this rich book, and we need all parts of Romans um, because we understand that being nourished and a healthy, strong, well-rounded Christian means uh, studying even portions that may be difficult, that may be more heavy on the doctrine side. We come to such a passage tonight, but I trust that God's word will be just as living and active. So follow along as I read our passage for us. We're going to be studying Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, and we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans 7, beginning in verse 7. This is the word of God. What then shall we say? That the law is sin, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful sinful. Beyond measure. Let's pray. God, we are in dire need of your grace, grace that delivers us from our sin, and grace that illumines the mind to understand weighty truths that would not only settle and lodge in our heads, but trickle down and hammer at our hearts, that we be convicted and moved to transformation, change. We know that this is not something that is brought about by our own strength and effort, but we plead for you to intervene, Lord, to to pierce us, to leave us undone, that you might build us up and make us more like Christ. And so give us eyes to see, to behold the the beauty of our Savior uh, in light of Dark and hard passages like this, we ask that your spirit would be here to guide and bless our time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I want to start with a thought experiment, nothing too difficult. You don't have to say it out loud, but in Genesis 2, what were God's instructions to man in the garden? You can take a few seconds if you need to jog your memory. But what were God's instructions to man in the garden? Now, how many of you recall it kind of like a prohibition, like you shall not do so and so? How many of you remember it as an exhortation, like you shall do this or that? Well, here's what God commands in Genesis 2, verse 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, of it, you shall surely die. Now, my guess, we didn't you know, show by sign of raising our hands, but my guess is that most of us remember God's instruction as limiting in the negative. Don't eat this tree. And just that. Sure, this is only one data point, but I think it fits in and accords with our natural reflex, our default attitude when we hear commands. What stands out to us is how they inhibit, how they restrict, how they impede upon our freedom. And I suspect there's something deeper going on. Perhaps it surfaces our disposition, our gut instinct to bristle, to resist, to reject and rebel when someone else imposes their will upon ours. And certainly, if you know the story, that's how things unfold in Genesis 3. In the vast and lush garden, among a variety of options, we find Adam and Eve At one tree, the tree they're told not to eat from. And two bites later, sin is put on full display. Sadly, it doesn't cease in sober admission, in contrite repentance for violating God's command. No, instead, excuses are made, right? Fingers are unholstered and directed and aimed at each other. The woman to the serpent, the man. To his wife, no one takes ownership. And reading this, we see through this kind of defense mechanism. I mean, it doesn't work on us when we're the victim, when we're the one wronged. But that doesn't prevent and preclude us from attempting this method on others, on our friends, on family members, on God. You see, we are... Our own best lawyers. Quick to justify our sin rather than to confess it. We'll point anywhere besides ourselves. We'll point to circumstances. You know, I didn't get much sleep. I was in a rush. We'll point to other individuals. You know, She's annoying or he's so sensitive. We'll even point up. Accusing God as if he has a role in our transgression. And you take a step back and you think about that. It's craziness. But crazy people will do anything and everything to worm their way out of guilt. Well, tonight, the Apostle Paul sets the record straight. He will not allow us to escape and wiggle away. And this is really for our good because a proper understanding of our sin and the law then paves a way for a proper embracing of the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to remember Paul's intention in the book of Romans. He is attempting to unveil the glory of the gospel, the power of God in salvation, the righteousness of God appropriated by faith. But we can only get there when we acknowledge the bad news first. Where the root issue lies. What needs addressing me and you? So what Paul seeks out to do in our passage tonight is to explain the dynamic between our rebellion and God's command, our sin and God's law. What is the exact relationship between the two? After all, If sin seems to always ride on the law's coattails, does this mean the law is bad? If the law arouses sin, is the law complicit? Is the law at fault? The apostle begins to answer this question through our first point tonight. We look first at sin manifested through the law. Sin manifested through the law. Return to verse 7. Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Now, apart from the law, we have something called a conscience. God gives us a conscience as an aid something to assist us. It sounds the internal alarm when we do something wrong. But like any security system, it's not perfect. It can be defective. It can be dulled. It can be flat-out ignored. You know, I may feel some remorse, some tinge of regret for eating my kids' Halloween candy the first time, but guess what? The second time, it's not there. I may just shrug my shoulders just so I can help myself to their Skittles. It's just an example, a fictional one. But the conscience is, yes, it's a decent guide, yet it's not foolproof. Well, the law grants clarity where our consciences can't. We may feel guilty when we do certain things, but the law reveals whether we truly are it becomes this rubric for grading, a benchmark, if you will. You see, I can have a vague notion that I'm tall. You know, maybe I compare myself to others to get an idea of my height. But if my point of reference is only NBA players, well, I'm going to conclude I'm short. On the other hand, if I am sizing myself up with small, tiny Asian girls, well, then I might conclude I'm ready to play in the NBA. What I actually need then is a standard, a standard measuring units and a ruler to get to the specifics, to know that I am five foot ten and a half, and that half is important. <laughs> Don't laugh. Don't cheat me of my half inch. Well, one of the law's functions is to be this rigid, this clear standard. It provides an accurate read, a way to describe what righteousness should look like, so that when you and I don't measure up, it's not subjective and open to debate. We don't compare ourselves with each other and say, well, at least I'm better than so and so. No, our sin becomes plain and evident against the backdrop of the law. Commandments written in black and white spell out for us what is right, what is wrong. But there's another thing the law teaches. It places our crimes and transgressions in their proper context. Here's what I mean. There is a big difference between knowing we've done wrong versus knowing that we've sinned against God. One is an opinion. You know, like, oh, I guess it's bad to punch people. But the other The other is relational. You know, God says, it is God who dictates it is not proper to express your anger unrighteously. The law assumes multiple parties involved. You know, when we break the law in the South Bay, we commit an offense punishable by the city of Torrance. And when we break God's law, Well, friends, we are accountable to God himself. The law then manifests our sin and the one we've offended. And before we can feign ignorance or plead innocence, Paul cites a particular commandment to bolster his argument and hold us all accountable, all culpable. The apostle quotes the last commandment, number 10 of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. You know why? Why this particular one? Because this commandment cuts to the quick and gets to our hearts. You know, with the other ten commandments, we may be literally innocent of committing adultery or stealing. We may even claim to have never lied. These other commandments are more external in some sense, visible, verifiable. But covetousness is an inside job. It hides and operates beneath the surface, behind the scenes. In fact, you could say that covetousness is involved in the source of all these other violations. That you steal because you covet something that's not yours. You commit adultery because you covet illicit sex. You bear false witness because you covet comfort or pristine reputation. And Tolkien did a masterful job of capturing this through his character, Gollum, or as you might affectionately know him as Smeagol. And what was Smeagol's main role in the story? Well, this wretched creature visibly manifests how repulsive and horrible it is to covet. And Tolkien is bringing it out of the darkness into the light so that we can see How grotesque the sin is, that by observing this monster on the big screen or reading of him in the books, we are made patently aware. The law makes us aware. Paul is attempting to capture the ugliness of our sin by highlighting just one coveting. You see, before the law, we observe our reflection our ugliness exposed, our secret sin brought to the light. Through the law, sin is no longer this abstract, this vague notion or idea. It is made concrete. This is sin when you murder, when you cheat, when you covet. Sin is manifested through the law. Our second point, sin manipulates through the law. Continuing on in verse 8, But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of, of covetousness. We'll stop there. Now, this word picture here is very vivid. Paul is utilizing military language. That sin is at war. It is ruthless. It strategizes and plots how to win the battle. And the path to victory, it seizes the opportunity to sin more through God's law through something that Paul will later say is good, holy, and righteous, and yet sin perverts it to perpetuate itself. It hears God's command, and the impulse is to head in the other direction. I mean, think of the Old Testament. You have the people of God, the Israelites, and they receive the law. And after they are commanded... Not to make any idols for themselves. Do you remember what happens next? Poof. Out of nowhere, from this fire, emerges the golden calf. Now, let's not be in a rush to judge. Though many centuries may separate us from these Jewish ancestors, I don't think we're very different. You see this in kids. You know, you give a boy a baseball bat, and at first... He's only aware of using it as it is designed, to hit a baseball, right? Baseball bat to clobber baseball. Makes logical sense. But then if you instruct and inform him, don't hit anyone with that bat, it's like a switch goes off, right? It's like, I can be Bam Bam from the Flintstones, right? I can wreak mayhem upon people. You know, you give the command, you can see the revelation spark in his eyes. I can use this bat to hit other things. Plants, windows, siblings. The list goes on and on. This bat is an awesome weapon of destruction. Paul is unearthing something intuitive within each of us. This is how much sway sin has on us. When given the opportunity to obey or disobey, Prior to Christ, we always gravitate towards the latter. Sure, there may be occasions where we might comply, but only if it already matches up, if it aligns with what we already want to do. But when it doesn't, well, then sin is stirred. The forbidden fruit entices. Prohibitions provoke. We are given new ideas how to exercise our rebellion our eager response to the law is not to comply, but to defy. It's why we have this tried and true parenting trick called reverse psychology. Just consider that. Reverse psychology works precisely because we expect the opposite. We anticipate disobedience. So we tell the child, don't clean your room because that is the way to dupe them into cleaning their room. And that's what Paul means here in verse 8, that covetousness uses these other commandments to deploy their wicked purposes as new entry points, as its playground. When we're prohibited from adultery, stealing, and lying, it ignites our sinful desires. We sneer, why not? Why not? Instead of regarding God and his commands, we look around us and grow green with envy. Our covetousness thrives when we come to realize, I don't have the spouse, the material possessions or reputation I want. And with more laws come more occasions to break them. We talk about total depravity. Sin seizes the opportunity to spread until we're infected through and through. And its goal is death. Which leads us to our third point. All of this sin manifesting through the law, manipulating the the law, all of it is aimed towards one end. Sin murders through the law. Sin murders through the law. That second half of verse 8, "'For apart from the law, sin lies dead.'" That's curious, what does Paul mean here when he speaks about sin lying dead? Is he contradicting all that he has previously taught in the earlier chapters of Romans? No, what he means is without commandments, without prohibitions, we've got nothing to sin against. We just do what we want. Sin appears dead. It's undetected because it's unaddressed. Let's say unknown to you, You sleep next to a bear. Now, in effect, in essence, it is dead to you until until you rub your eyes and you open them. Paul elaborates on this concept in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. There's a pivot here. Paul is not persuading us to to plug our ears and avoid reading the Bible as if we insulate ourselves from the law, then we won't sin and save, we'll actually save our lives. No, your naivety doesn't alter reality. It just means you don't know. This is tantamount to ignorance is bliss. You know, I'm using a lot of kids' illustrations in my sermon tonight, but children are the perfect example of this. Some of them may be aware that they're mischievous, even naughty at times, but they don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes. They don't grasp the depth of their uh, depravity, the gravity of their sin. They just chalk it up to human nature, right? Like, I'm crying, I'm whining, or I'm mean because I'm not getting my way. It's no big deal. But parents, parents know what's up because they are better informed. Well, prior to the law, we're like children. We're oblivious. We carry on with our lives with no real regard to the state of our soul. And sure, we might feel bad for mistakes made or how we hurt people with an insensitive word, but we chalk it up to human nature. Well, no one's perfect, and so we just go with the flow of the world until until the Word of God comes. Until the law of God exposes how dark, how twisted, how deep our sin goes. And we take the red pill and we're in for rude awakening. There is a God who has told me through his word how I should live. That my disobedience isn't merely a mental lapse or a petty offense that I am indeed a sinner condemned and liable to divine judgment. I am a dead man. And so the commandment comes. Our sin is realized. It is alive. And we are slain. I mean, this is a common thread in all Christian testimonies. You know, my first exposure to Christianity was at a place called Awana. Some of you might be familiar with this magical place. I got invited out when I was in elementary uh, school from my elementary school friend. Uh, I was obviously oblivious to how heaven and hell hang in the balance of what you do with Jesus Christ, how there are eternal ramifications and consequences for my actions. I was just minding my own business, playing games running around the circle, trying to earn a want buck so that I could buy those cool styrofoam gliding airplanes. It wasn't until much later, in college, when it all came to bear, when I was confronted by God's commands and struck with the gravity of my sin. All the ways I had been cruel to my brother growing up, been impatient with my parents, acted selfishly. All the ways I had violated the school's rules or broken the civic law was ultimately escalated for me, elevated when my eyes were opened to see that it was actually, ultimately, a breaking of his law, that I didn't do just bad things. I sinned against God. And the cat was out of the bag. The law only uncovered what was always residing in me. And enslaved to sin, I died. Paul expands upon this in verse 10. It says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, it killed me. Sure, the law promises life to those who can keep it. There is no punishment for the perfect. But that's kind of the trick. Our inability to obey is meant to be a telltale sign that we're not perfect. And if every human being breaks the law, it puts us in a posture of brokenness, of utter neediness. What does a beggar do but beg? What do the drowning cry out for but a Savior? No one sinking in the water cries out, I need a Savior, and then realizes a second later, oh, I'll just save myself. That's foolishness. No, the desperate look for someone to deliver them. It was Augustine who said, God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. But sin doesn't want us to know this. Sin distracts us by arriving at other conclusions. It doesn't want us to live. It wants us dead. And so it lies. Sin always lies. It tells us there's got to be another way, a better alternative. That was Eve's downfall, and that is ours today. Sin competes by promising the very life that God does. Only one is true, the other is fool's gold. And the deadliest truths in life are half ones. It's a contradiction of term, but anything slippery and laced with poison goes down easy. I mean, isn't this our experience? How sin usually operates. Not by proclaiming all the ways you will be miserable if you indulge in the flesh. Not the frustration and emptiness when we rely upon our own strength and smarts. No, it deceives us by guaranteeing something better. Sin tells us that if you're greedy, you'll get ahead. You'll get satisfied. But feeding such insatiable appetites never produce contentment. Sin tells us raising our voice will win the argument or is the proper way to vent. But just look at the aftermath. I've never known anyone convinced or unharmed by someone yelling at them. Judge for yourself who's true, who's a liar. Where God promises life, sin deceives by suggesting an alternative. Only this path leads to destruction. We die. Sin manifested through the law, manipulates through the law, murders through the law, and finally, sin magnified through the law. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What is Paul doing here? He's tying any loose ends. Yes, sin is manifested through the law. We become to awareness of it that it exists, that it's real. But now, Paul pulls out his magnifying glass so that there's no missing it. So we see it as big as it really is. There is no confusion where the problem really lies. The apostle speaks very candidly. He puts this in the affirmative. He is redundant for emphasis. The law in its entirety, the commandments individually, the whole and the parts, together are wholly righteous and good. So we concludes in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul is dividing it up. He's separating the pieces. The law is good. Sin is what's deadly. The issue is not the law, but sin. You know, you don't blame drunk driving on the car. Or another example, if an MRI reveals a tumor in the body, you don't berate the MRI scanner for the results it produces. No, the cancer is within so Paul here absolves the law to isolate the illness. The law, the commandments aren't bad. They only reveal how bad our sin is. They magnify what's cancerous. Now that's not a very high note to end on, right? But that's where we're landing the plane tonight. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, let me close with one simple ex- exhortation, one application to really Meditate on and ponder. Examine how you think through, how you live, how you relate with the law. And I don't mean just the Ten Commandments, but what it represents. The law, workspace, performance, righteousness, does that match God's design? Because he desires for the law To not be the terminus, to not be the ultimate standard, to not be your solution. He designs for the law to lead you to Christ. First, this will require humility. In Snow White, the, the wicked witch is notorious for her fixation with her own appearance, her own image. You know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? She's enamored with herself, wanting to be the best, the prettiest of them all. In a word, she is prideful. And as long as she hears what tickles her ears, as long as she sees what she likes, there's no trouble. It's when the mirror tells her a truth that differs from her perceptions that she becomes enraged. So the same. The law holds a mirror to us, to our souls. Do we have the humility to accept what we see as truth from God, or will we stubbornly refuse because it is safer? It is more soothing to be delusional. We must die one way or the other. We either die to our ego or we die in our sin. But listen, this pill isn't as hard to swallow as we might think. I think we often forget how the story ends. You know, we gloss over the Word, we search the Scriptures, we read of how we have to confess our sins, deny ourselves, that it's all about doing hard things, that we shouldn't be surprised by persecution, that we, should, that we are not to lay up treasures on earth. And we blare these messages on repeat long enough, we reduce Christianity mistakenly into a life. Of misery, But that stops too short. You see, we sell all that we have so that we can buy the treasure hidden in the field. We endure momentary afflictions because it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We deny ourselves so we can follow Jesus. We confess our sin, not to throw a pity party, but to cling to Christ as Savior. Broken by the law, Dead in our sin, there is wholeness and life in Jesus Christ. That is where the law is supposed to get you to be a launching pad away from yourself, away from others, to Christ, our Lord and Savior. And this attitude, this conviction, isn't supposed to take place only at our point of conversion at the moment of our salvation. This is supposed to be baked into us, to be then the aroma of our lives. We don't clean up and transform our lives to be accepted by God. No, in Christ we are accepted and loved by God and so our lives are transformed. But isn't it so easy to forget this? The law is meant to lead us to Jesus and yet how often... Do we live as if Jesus leads us to the law? I mean, take stock. Evaluate your own lives. How do you discern how you're doing spiritually? Often we think the measure for our faith is how many times we've read the Bible, how many times we've shown up at church, how much we've served and in which ministries, how many days we've gone without cussing or falling into lust. If that is the standard, are we not pulling out the law to define and dictate a living relationship? In the end, that approach can only be disastrous. It'd be like trying to gauge the health of my relationship with my wife or anyone else for that matter based on sheerly and solely how many minutes I spend with her. How long it's been since I've lost my temper. How much money I'm willing to spend on a gift for her. It's a lot, just FYI. But sure, these areas, you know, they may be helpful. They may assist, provide some level of insight. You know, if I'm not willing to buy her lunch, that may indicate something has gone terribly wrong. But the most important metric shouldn't be a dollar amount practice, we need to be very careful of keeping score on something that's not a game. If we do that, we lose sight of the person and trade him in for a program. We return to a system of works-based righteousness, forfeiting, knowing the one who is lovely, gracious, compassionate, and kind. So what's the remedy? Yes, be bankrupt before the law. Be devastated by sin but all for the sake of knowing Christ, in order that you might delight in Him and Him alone. Just like how you learn how to interact the more time you spend with a person. When the focus in the Christian life is communing, loving, and relating with Jesus, then the proper responses and actions will follow. It's why in in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls us to abide in Him, to live, dwell, to to make home with him. Because when you live with a person, you don't need everything spelled out for you for every single occasion. You just know how to interact. You just know how to love one another. It's why imitation doesn't happen by merely copying someone. The best imitation is often unintentional. When fostered through a relationship, when the law doesn't lead you to be preoccupied with strict law-keeping, but leads you to the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And these past 35, 40 minutes, this service tonight is not meant to be rote and routine, not something we just check in and check off of our to-do list, as good christians but lord these are means of grace Lord, these are disciplines and exercises and pathways in which we come face to face with our lord and savior that we fellowship over your word because it reveals to us the splendor and glory of jesus christ that though we are condemned in our sin and the law makes that plain and clear to us, Lord, it's then we long for Christ. We look to Jesus, our Savior. And so, Father, help us to understand the law, your your word, your commandments, properly properly not merely as a way of establishing our own righteousness, but Lord, as a way of establishing our guilt that we might flee all the more to Christ, that we might enjoy him, love him, and learn to live for him and with him. We pray for your help in Jesus' name, amen.